We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 216 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. It's a bit like old times tonight, isn't it? We're just uh, sitting down here and, and Skyping one another. It is. I'm just yeah. looking at a computer screen. I can't see your beautiful face, Scott. <laughs> you, you can't see mine. <laughs> and no Paul, neither. You know, we can't even see Paul because... He's just tucked up in bed, didn't want to go out in a cold night and go to your place with a decent internet connection. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, where's the commitment? That's what I want to know. Exactly, yeah. He he has piped out, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think the 12th Man fanboys out there should take note and maybe... Yeah, the 12th Man fanboys should take note and maybe switch their allegiance to the uh, Velvet Glove fanboys, I (laughs) think so. That's it. (laughs) I do have one fangirl. Very good. Very good. But isn't she a friend or a relative, so that doesn't count? Uh, well, she's a friend of Brian's. That, uh, well, she's, okay. she's a friend of Brian's who lives in um, Wales. So. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll count it for the moment then. So. Yeah, absolutely. Fair, yeah. fair enough. So, <laughs> dear listener, if you're joining us for the first time, this is a podcast where we talk about news and politics, sex and religion, the things going on in the world, what's been happening, mostly in Australia, but a little bit around the world, and we try and analyse and understand and explain and and think about so that's what we're going to do just the two of us scott old times again and yeah, um and scott uh we'll kick off with uh well we don't actually see each other that much uh outside of podcasting but we saw each other on the weekend because we attended a rally we did yes we did we attended the um i don't know what it was called but anyway it was the rally that was against the uh legislation that's coming up for the commonwealth government for well religious freedom but you know i call it religious privilege yes uh, and you know what i found really disappointing about the whole thing was that we were re-prosecuting exactly the same argument we had with the same-sex marriage debate you know? <laughs> did yep it definitely felt that way yeah it did. you know it, it's just really very disappointing that the christian right will not get over that victory you know they yeah. just cannot move on Essentially, it was a rally that was organised by the uh, LGBTIQ communities and so obviously uh, heavily influenced by them and really they were just fighting for their rights to be school teachers and school students and not be sacked or, or uh, expelled uh, from religious schools. So, you know, once again, fighting for their privileges that they thought they'd got with the Marriage Equality Act to some extent. So... Uh, small crowd, Scott? It was only a very small crowd. But mm. um, one of the things that I did think about uh, was that, you know, the, the first marriage equality rallies were not all that large. They did get progressively bigger over time. Okay. And it just, uh, I, I thought to myself, maybe we could be on the same trajectory again. Um, you know, but the other thing too is that, you know, we, we've said this before, religion has a benign sort of feel about it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's there to oppress you or anything like that except for those of us that understand it yeah but it's just one of those things that you just think to yourself i really hope people wake up to this and they actually start making some noise about it 
Mm. But the other side is they might think that religion is benign and all that sort of thing, so we just got to look after it, you know, which is just nonsense. Because what they've done is they have set, you know, you can just see it, can't you? That they're setting themselves up to get exactly the same bloody privileges that they've always had, and they're just going to use them to kick people while they're down. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, they're going to take all of these privileges in various state um, uh, discrimination acts and um, and combine them all into one federal one and probably beef them up to some extent. So you're dead yeah, right. That's exactly. that's what's going to happen. And uh, you know, I mean, New South Wales had two and a half thousand people, I think, at their rally. Yeah, so exactly. I reckon about two hundred. Maybe two fifty at the Brisbane one if you're lucky. So probably, yeah. yeah. So you were there for the speeches beforehand. Yeah. Uh, so there was a series of speakers got up and spoke, and they all had sort of about five or ten minutes each. There's about half a dozen of them, I guess. Thoughts mm-hmm. on that, Scott? I really loved what the uh, Indigenous bloke had to say. Actually, yeah. You know, he really went to town, didn't he? he yes. Um, spoke from the heart. Very mo- he moving and emotional. Heart. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, he was very powerful, too, with what he said. He um, And he did lay the blame fairly and squarely at Malcolm Turnbull's feet, too, for the whole thing. He said that, you know, you gave him to the religious right and all that sort of thing. And I think, mm. you know, we're on, on reflection, mm. I think that was probably Turnbull's failing, was giving in to the religious right. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah. anyway, yeah, was, they, they kicked off and, and when introducing and him. So did, sorry, the other person that I thought was very powerful was the mother. Yes. The woman that stood up, you know, that she was in grey, she was grey-haired and all that yes. sort of thing, but she was very, she was from PFLAG, wasn't she? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she was very powerful. Yeah, mm. PFLAG stands for? Parents, Friends of Lesbians and Gays. Right, yeah, that would be correct. So um, yeah. she spoke well, and the others, you know, spoke to varying degrees and all emotional and fervent. Um, I don't know, Scott, like, obviously if you're going to do a street march, you'd, you obviously do some chanting. <laughs> I felt really uncomfortable yeah. with chanting. <laughs> it seemed so... Chanting just feels religious to me. Like It does, yeah. It's that sort of thing. I just keep... You know, I just felt really uncomfortable with the chanting. So I was right down the back of the, of the march and only occasionally, you know, chanting my bit just because it just... I don't know. I've been indoctrinated into uh, feeling that chanting is a kind of a religious observance. So there we go. I've, mm. Yeah, I've been crippled by my upbringing to some extent. But you didn't actually. <laughs> you didn't actually march. You went to a coffee shop. No, I didn't march. No, yeah. no me, me and the twelfth uh, man and friend of the show Ian went to uh, the coffee shop. We yeah. waited for you and Craig to finish yeah. up. So you didn't march for any particular reason, or just you didn't feel like it? I just didn't feel like it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just. One yeah. of those things. Yeah. yeah, Paul didn't march because he wasn't 100% in line with everything that they had said. But, of course, you're never going to be 100% in line <laughs> with what everybody says. Everything said, no. no yeah. You know. so, um, so, anyway. So, uh, you know, we had the whole welcome to country thing and all that yes. sort of stuff. That was just a little bit over the top. When you, If you're going to have that, you should have one person saying it, not everyone say it. You know. Yeah, and... She also, at the beginning, wanted everybody to chant, you know, um, something about it's still their country, yeah. always was, always yeah. was will be. And always, always was, will be, will be Aboriginal land. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I'd gone there for an anti-religious privilege rally. I didn't know I was going for a pro-Indigenous rights rally. So, mm-hmm. But, hey, 
you know, I don't have to yeah. chant. I can just stand there and I'll move and wait for the topic that I'm interested in. So, you know, exactly. you, got, you, can't, you can't expect everybody to agree with you all the time. Twelfth ah, man. Exactly. So, anyway. <laughs> And we're going to be picking on the 12th man a little bit tonight when he's not even here to defend himself. that's right. We gave him lots of opportunity. So, anyway, that was uh, the rally. Good luck to the other cities that have won. Also, it just, you know, it really wasn't very well publicised because, Scott, like, as you know, I I subscribe to an enormous number of um, Facebook pages and blogs and you know, all sorts of media news sources. And I only stumbled across knowing about that rally by chance. So if somebody like me only only found out about it from one source um, and just stumbled on it, then clearly most people just wouldn't have even known it was on. So it, it just wasn't no, promoted exactly. well enough. Yeah. So, mm. so there we go. That was that. Um, Scott, um, our... Deputy Leader, the Leader of the Nationals, uh, our Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, he's as bad as ScoMo, isn't he? He certainly is, yeah. So, so uh, see, you know, uh, I'll let you come he's, yeah. he's, you know, the Pacific Island nations um, at this recent conference have been saying, well, what are we going to do about climate change? You guys are going to stop, you know, mining all of this coal because our islands are about to be inundated with seawater. And Michael McCormack was at um, something at uh, Wagga, I think he was, and responding to some questions at a forum there. So um, he said, and I'll quote his words exactly because it's quite interesting. Um, so, So basically the questioner was sort of saying, you know, do you feel sorry for the Pacific Islanders and what comments do you have to make? And he said, quote, I also get a little bit annoyed when we have people in those sorts of countries pointing the finger at Australia and saying we should be shutting down all our resources sector so that, you know, they will continue to survive. (laughs) (laughs) That's a direct quote. Annoyed with people pointing their finger because they're wanting to continue to survive. He says, quote, they will continue to survive. There's no question they'll continue to survive and they'll continue to survive on large aid assistance from Australia. They'll continue to survive because many of their workers come here and pick our fruit. Pick our fruit grown with hard Australian enterprise and endeavour and we welcome them and we always will. There we go. They're going to survive off. Because we, we, out of the goodness of our hearts, Scott, allow them to pick our fruit. to come over here and work, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just a, the arrogance of that statement is incredible. You know, you've got Tuvalu, which is incredibly low-lying, and my understanding was there were people that were photographed and the water was rising up to their ankles, uh, well, well, over their, well over their knees or something like that. And it's just incredibly arrogant for him to say something like what he just said, you know? Yeah. It's... Uh, yeah, these guys are living it. in a different world. Clearly. Oh, they are. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It is a completely different world. Yep. All right. Uh, speaking of somebody living in a different world, uh, well, the people who listen to Alan Jones must live in a different world. Why? 
Why would you listen to that character? One of, one of my brothers does. <laughs> right. The, yeah. the danger is people believe what he says. He'll sprout facts about stuff, about percentage of you know, coal mining or millions of dollars of this or percentages of this and that. That's all just bullshit. Like, he, he will just say things that are just untrue. Doesn't mm. care. He's a good So, on some issues, he is. And you just can't tell. You don't know when he says something whether you can believe it or not. Like, it's, you just don't know. But um, anyway, he came out and said um, in relation to... Jacinda Ardern, um, because Morrison was meeting with her, and he said something to the effect of that he hoped Morrison had been briefed to shove a sock down her throat. Yeah. Just, that's really unpleasant, wasn't it? Yeah. Then he claims to have been misquoted. Yeah, has, he been, has he been told to apologise or not? He has, and he issued some sort of apology after sort of doubling down initially and saying he was misquoted and... Ra ra. So there has been some sort of apology there, um, but you know why? Um, because the new owners threatened him, didn't they? And and why are they threatening him? Because they don't want to get sued. And, and well, actually, more than that, <laughs> it's because advertisers are leaving. So yeah, already yeah. about three of them or something said we're off, we're going, and others are sort of obviously um, contacting TUE and saying you've got to do something like this is bad for our brand and the sort of activist groups now scott who who look at the 2ue alan jones advertising list list of advertisers and then spread that around to on the internet and facebook pages and say here's the list of advertisers on alan jones's program uh, here's their contact details their twitter handles um you know, tell them what you think about whether they should be continuing to advertise on his program. And that sounds like it's been effective. It certainly, it certainly does sound like it's being effective um, mm. because most of the people that are actually writing into those advertisers wouldn't actually listen to the program. They wouldn't know what he'd said. So they're just yes. going by word. They're just going by what they've been told he said yeah. and they're kicking up a hell of a stink over it all. Anyway, yeah. I... It wouldn't worry me in the slightest if he was just booted off the radio because the man's a... I shouldn't say that, should I? Because is that defamatory or not? Well, I might have to go back and scratch some of that out, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to do a bit of editing now. Yeah, thanks for that. (laughs) But um, here's the interesting thing. Um, So, you know, people are saying that he should be sacked for these comments. And if the twelfth man was here, I'd like to ask him whether he thinks TUE should be able to sack Alan Jones under some sort of conduct clause, and whether you know, uh, if he thinks yes, then how is that different to the Falliar case? So, uh, but he's not I here. I suspect the twelfth man would probably argue that he shouldn't be sacked, um, but. If they continue to lose advertisers and that sort of thing, they're going to have no choice but to sack him because he costs a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, well, if he's got a contract that runs for two or three years, then, uh, you know, this is the thing. They, they can be running at a huge loss. So, so anyway, to those of you out there, maybe Hugh Harris as well, when you say, well, you know, uh, are you happy for 2UE to sack Alan Jones? 
but not happy for ARU to sack Falau, the question will be, well, what's his job, I guess? And they would say, well, Falau's job was to kick a football. And who cares what he thinks about gay people? That's not his job. His job is to play football. You could also say, well, who cares what Alan Jones thinks about women or Adern? His job is to com- comment on politics in the news. And, you know, so who cares what his thoughts are on women or Adern? Like, you could say the same thing. So this is where it gets... Um, Interesting. So, anyway, we'll take that up with the 12th man, see what his thoughts are on whether Alan Jones should be sacked. But you're of the view that he should be, Scott, under a conduct clause, you should be able to just boot him out for that sort of thing? Well, I would have thought so, yeah. Mm. You know, because I think the man is, you know, I've already said it, but I I don't like the man or anything like that. And if he is losing advertisers because of his conduct, then I Mm. think it's a commercial decision that they've got to make that they've got to get rid of him. You know, I've you know you hear snippets of 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 him talking on his radio program, um, and he's so angry and bitter, and you just think, what sort of person wants to start their day off listening to that? Like you'd be in such a foul, aggressive, nasty mood for the rest of the morning if you were listening to Alan Jones. Like he he just just hype you up into a pretty bad state. I would have thought he's like you, you're not doing yourself any service by. Um, for your mental health and well-being, just listening to somebody rant like that in the morning. I just don't understand why somebody would subject themselves to that voluntarily. I don't, I don't get it. Well, stop. I mean, I remember Malcolm Turnbull, because he never went on Alan Jones's program. Right. He copped a fair amount of flat from him for mm-hmm. not turning up on the program. But what I thought was very amusing about that was he said... Um, he said at the time, he says, I don't know why people listen to them. I suppose I suppose it's cheaper than a cup of coffee to get your heart started. Right. You know, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. That's, there's a reason. Uh, yep. No, it's just I don't understand what my brother gets out of him or anything like that. He doesn't listen to our program, but he listens to Alan Jones. So. Wow. Okay. There we go. Yep. Yeah. Hey, we were talking about nuclear weapons at one point, and again, the 12th man was pro-Australia having nuclear weapons as a deterrence. And mm. I was just reading this thing that said, um, f- uh, for deterrence to work, for the weaker country, the more powerful enemy must believe nuclear weapons will be used if attacked. Um, if the enemy does attack, however, using nuclear weapons, um, it guarantees nuclear or devastation for everyone. Um, uh, here, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll cancel that and I'll just get to the um, the key part here. Is suppose sometime in the future Australia possesses nuclear weapons and long-range delivery systems and for whatever reason we're attacked by China using sea-based and air-launched conventional munitions. Would we, Australia, really threaten nuclear retaliation? What if China didn't find our threat credible and persisted with its strikes? Would we launch nuclear strikes on Chinese targets? And if we don't, China will have called our bluff on a non-credible threat. And if we do, we have entrapped ourselves in a posture of mutual nuclear suicide in the name of national defence. So that's the thing. Like, if China attacks us with conventional weapons... We're not going to lob a nuclear bomb on them. 
But that deterrence no, works for that. North Korea because if the US uh, launches a conventional attack on North Korea, they will lob nuclear weapons on you know some neighbouring country. So Absolutely, yeah. they're crazy and we're not. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. that's the so point. That's, yeah, that is the whole point. That's why I don't think it's actually worthwhile us pursuing a nuclear deterrent because I don't think we'd end up using them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that being the case, I just don't think there's any point us trying to use them. Yeah. Even us even considering using yep. them is just a useless bloody thing because we wouldn't we wouldn't use it. So it's just yeah. a ridiculous thing to do. If attacked with conventional weapons, we wouldn't be lobbing a nuclear um, bomb on on these countries and. Uh, if attacked with a nuclear bomb, well, it's too late. We don't even know until it's exploded, so it's all over Red Rover. Uh, mm. Anyway, I just... There we go. So that's thoughts on that. Um, I wanted to go on a bit of a uh, China-USA, a bit of an America-bashing theme again, as has been the case for a while. <laughs> and I know I've been on it for a while, but it's all about trying to shift people's preconceived ideas and and they've been indoctrinated into a type of discourse about America that I'm feverishly working against so I'll keep working away on it <laughs> now last week um, in response to what I said there was a message from Woz who said please tell me I have misunderstood the fists position on China exclamation mark I heard I'd rather take sides with an Asian fascist dictatorship than a Western democracy, primarily because the former is going to be more economically powerful soon. That was Woz's words. Well, Woz, <laughs> you know, I did say that in some 50-50 decisions, we should fall China's way because they're ultimately going to be the winner. But obviously, if they're doing terrible things uh, they're the full, and they're the fully the guilty party, well, we should criticise them in those situations. But, yeah, so just um, assuming that they, they mass troops along the, uh, whatever it is, along the Formosan Straits and that sort of stuff, and they said, if Taiwan does not back down, we're going to invade, then at mm. that point you can say, no, Beijing, you're wrong, you shouldn't yeah. invade Taiwan. Yes. Yes. But, you know, if they're having trade and tariff disputes with America and there's right and wrong yeah. on both sides, we should just well, look at it and go... You're probably back China. Yeah. Well, in, at the moment, China's in the right on those issues. Um, Absolutely. And are. if yeah. it was 50-50, let's go with China anyway, because they are going to win this <laughs> dominance battle at the end of the day. And, Scott, we're going to talk a little bit, in a little bit, about the US dollar and and how the sort of... The loss of the gold standard meant um, the institution of the US dollar as the world's currency. And that's been a kind of a crutch that's been holding up America magically. And with Trump and what he's doing, he's basically uh, kicking that away and uh, it could all go to shit very quickly. So... Um, so, you know, part of, you know, if we have to choose between China and the USA, if we start acquiring US dollars, they're going to be valueless in a short time, it seems to me. But, you know, we'll, we'll get to that one. But in the meantime... I think it's going to take a little longer than a short time. But anyway... Yeah. <laughs> These things happen quickly. But anyway, uh, before we get to that, 
let's just quickly talk about um, why I'm not alone in my feelings on USA versus China. And um, I've got a link to an article which was a, uh, a survey done by Pew um, Research. And it says that... Uh, Europeans are cautious and prudent in their dealings with China as they are with Russia and the US. Uh, A recent Pew survey found that the US was regarded as a bigger global threat than China in France, Germany, Greece, Spain, Sweden and the Netherlands and the UK. Um, in, In addition, the African and Latin American countries found the US to be considered a greater threat to global security than China. So... Um, even after its aggression in Georgia and the Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea and facing the Russian uh, massive military at their borders, Europeans regard the US as a greater threat than Russia. So, um, so Scott, I'm going to just look at that link. And um, it's an interesting survey. Did you get a chance to have a look at the table and what was in it? Um, I did look at it very briefly. Hmm. So... What they've done is they've asked people in various countries what is the top international threat um, uh, in their view. And uh, for most countries, um, uh, global climate change was the number one, then Mm -hmm. uh, Islamic military, um, cyber attacks from other countries... North Korea's nuclear program scored highly, the condition of the global economy, then US power and influence, then Russia's power and influence, and then China's power and influence. So, so China's quite down the list then. Yeah, overall. And now within the different countries, that changes a fair bit. So if we look at someone like uh, Germany, uh, 40, 49% were worried about US power and influence, but only 33 were worried about China. So similar thing with um, France, 49% worried about the US, 40% worried about China. Um, Let's find some other ones. Uh, Let me just see. Japan... Argentina, 57% were concerned with the US, but only 39% concerned with China. Sorry. I'll get to Australia in a minute, but as a bit of a lead-up, Japan, 66% were worried about the US and 69% worried about China. So um, even in somewhere like Japan, you would have thought their fears of China would be much higher than their fear of America. But there you go. 73% higher. Yeah. The UK, 37% um, in the uh, fearful of the US, only 29% fearful of China, 45% fearful of Russia in that case. Australia, Mm. um, 36% put US power and influence, 51% put China. So... Uh, so I'm against the grain in Australia, but I'm sort of um, running with the sort of a collection of other world countries, I guess. So um, 
Let me see. Even somewhere like uh, Indonesia, 52% were worried about US influence and power as opposed to uh, 43% worried about China. So there you go, Was I'm not alone in in um, in seeing the threat of the US as being worse than the threat of China. No, I don't think you're alone in that. I, I still don't entirely agree with you. However, I do take your point that... Um, if China is clearly acting very, ba- if, if China is clearly behaving very badly, then I think we've got the right to call them out on it. Mm. And if the US behaves very badly, then we should say, look, as a friend, I'm telling you to pull your head in. Mm. You know, I think that's fine. Mm. Um, I'm still not a hundred percent that we should throw out the ANZUS alliance, but you know, I'm no longer convinced that they'll come to our aid. Um, you know, it's only if it suits them at the time. So, Absolutely, yeah. and that, that, that's the whole point. You know, it's um, you know, John Howard almost got us into a war with Indonesia over East Timor, right? Um, and the Yanks hummed and hard about it and all that sort of stuff. Where we were ready to go in charging into East Timor, and we thought the Yanks had had our back, mm. and the Yanks sat there and built and said, "Oh, I'm not sure if we should get involved." Yeah, you're on your own you on know? this one. Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's probably a good decision just to keep America out of it and let us deal with it ultimately. But the point was they were asked to help and they said no. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it just sort of it just sort of painted a, a real lie to that whole thing about you know we went to Vietnam to as a down payment on the ANZUS alliance because if we yeah. ever need them they'll come to our aid. Yeah. And you know what? They didn't come to our aid. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. Yep. Anyway. Right, so um, so what we've got is uh, Trump as well as announcing um, a tariff on Chinese goods coming into the country, 10% tariff on uh, $300 billion worth of Chinese products. So mm. he's accusing... He honestly believes... Go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. He honestly, he honestly believes that the Chinese companies end up paying for this yes seems to he he honestly is that stupid that he honestly believes that these tariffs are are a direct charge on chinese companies he doesn't understand that the american consumer is the one that's paying for it anyway yeah he's quoted as saying china's paying for those tariffs and until such a time as there is a deal we will be taxing the hell out of china that's all there is Like, they're just going to ship it at the same price and it'll have 10% whacked on it and it'll be the um, the poor American consumer who will just be paying extra thanks to the Don. And it'll just encourage China to, uh, you know, move into other markets away from America because it clearly can't trust America anymore. So... Uh, this is the whole point. Like, you know, you've got a situation that um, Obama did some deal with China... Mm. To keep them to keep their um, cyber hacking out of America's private businesses, mm-hmm. and the um, I forget where it was, somewhere I saw on it, they said that they found footprints of Chinese hackers and that sort of stuff in American private industry, and it's all started since since Trump started the trade war. Right. Yeah. You know, um, so, as part of all this, Trump wants the Fed to reduce interest rates 
because he thinks that will devalue the US dollar, which will then make the US exports more competitive and will also um, yeah, boost the economy. But um, Sounds like a reasonable theory if you've got a mixed economy. Yes. If you're actually producing stuff in factories that the world wants, then that could possibly have some merit to it. But um, I've got a link to an article here um, where this economist is saying that the problem for America is that... Um, uh, I'm quoting just a little bit from it here, is it's to do with the fact that Wall Street and the corporate employers have jumped ship, they've moved abroad, and they've hollowed out the United States. Um, basically, the US doesn't have manufacturing um, industries anymore. So, you know, it's not like now, oh, you know, America's widgets are suddenly going to be cheaper and they could you know, find new markets that they couldn't find before. They just don't have the factories producing the widgets anymore because they've allowed their companies to just take them all offshore to cheap labour markets and uh, they're not producing anything. So uh, even if they had the factories, the problem is that the cost of living in the US is still too high, so their labour is still going to be too expensive to compete on these things. So the sort of... Um, so what Trump's trying to achieve isn't going to work and it's going to backfire on them. And Scott, you know, as we, before we started recording, we we're sort of umming and ahhing over this and I'm going to try and um, give a little explanation on the US dollar <laughs> and how it works. And uh, this is complicated, dear listener. And it is very complicated. Scott, yeah. if I get caught along the way, I might be editing and chopping things out because... Yeah, but that's no problem at all. I think we might have to edit it because it is very complicated. Yeah, but we'll give it a go because, dear listener, this has fascinated me for a long time about how the US dollar is the default currency of the world and that, you know, I've read at different times that this has given the US a significant... Um, advantage that nobody else has and I've never really understood it and I kind of understand it now and I'm going to try and explain it to you. So this all comes from a guy called um, Dr. Michael Hudson, a financial economist and historian, president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends. He's a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And he wrote a book in 1972 called Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire. So he's been watching this since then, 1972. And you can actually get that book for free from his website, all 300-odd pages of it, if you're interested in this topic as a free PDF. So that's what I'm relying on as I'm telling his explanation. So he's obviously American, and the words where I'm quoting them are... Uh, from an interview that he did and also other things that he said. So here we go. Stay with me on this one and um, we'll, we'll give it a crack and try and explain the US dollar in, in 20 minutes or so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on tight. I've never been so nervous, Scott, about trying to explain something, but here we go. Okay, so clearly the US was dominating the world economy from uh, 1920 through to 1960 uh, in, a, in a creditor position. 
Um, after the 1960s, it became a debtor. So um, between the end of World War II and uh, 1950, when the Korean War broke out, um, America had accumulated over 75% of the world's monetary gold. Like, that's a lot, Scott, isn't it? Mm, like, by the 1950s, it had 75% of the world's gold. And this is at the time when everyone's currency was pegged to gold. So the United States had heavy agricultural exports, uh, growing industrial exports, and it had enough money to buy up the leading industries of Europe and Latin America and other countries. But beginning in 1950 with the Korean War, the balance of payments moved into deficit for the first time. And it got even worse when Eisenhower decided that America had to support uh, French colonialism in uh, Vietnam and Laos. And um, by the time the Vietnam War escalated in the 60s, the dollar was running large balance of payments deficits. So America was spending more than it was earning. Every week on Wall Street, we would watch the gold supply go down, losing gold to countries that weren't at war, like France and Germany. They were cashing in the excess dollars that were being spent by the US military. So dollar pegged to the gold, dollars going out of the country, France and Germany buying up lots of gold, and so um, so they went from a position in the 1950s of having 75% of the world's monetary gold, and by the 1960s it became clear that America was going to run out of gold within a decade because mm. of overseas war spending. And it finally did by 1971 when Nixon stopped selling gold on the London Exchange. Uh, the price was allowed to soar above $35 an ounce, and um, they were running deep deficits, fighting wars in Southeast Asia, and they had a balance of payments deficit. The private sector sector was actually in balance. It was uh, the military that was causing uh, the deficit. And so when America went off the gold standard, so instead of guaranteeing the world that, you know, for this dollar, you will, um, you know, $35 will buy you an ounce of gold, they just said, no, not anymore, not getting any gold from us. You're just getting a a promise uh, that you have $35 and you can spend it as $35. Um, uh, so what this guy, this economist realised what was that if countries could no longer buy and hold gold in their international reserves, what were they going to hold? And it turned out the one asset that they could hold would be US government treasury bonds. So... A treasury bond is a loan to the U.S. Treasury um, when the uh, when a foreign central bank buys a bond, it finances um, U.S. domestic budgets. So basically, somebody like Germany is collecting lots of U.S. dollars, um, and or German, you know, manufacturers are. They give those US dollars to their central bank in return for Deutschmark, it would have been back then, and, and then euros now. Yeah, yeah. And the central bank is then holding all of these US dollars, and it's like, well, what do I do with, what do we do with these US dollars? Uh, well, what we'll do is we'll lend them to the US government uh, with the promise that they will pay them back to us in 10 years' time with 2% interest. You know, that's a bond. 
So um, it's an IOU. It's the US government saying, thanks for this US dollars that you're giving back to us, and we promise in 10 years' time, if it's a 10-year bond, that we'll give it back to you with some interest. And uh, promise. It's an IOU. So so it's sort of um, money leaves America, ends up in the hands of central banks in other countries. What are they going to do with it? Uh, send it back to America to as an investment. And one of the reasons they do that, Scott, is because of um, not wanting their own currency to become too valuable. So if uh, the Germans... Now, let me just find... Well, actually, before I get onto that, we'll get onto the Germans and that. But um, So we've got a circular flow of money. So this was um, seen clearly in the 1970s um, when OPEC, the oil countries, quadrupled the price of oil. And at the time, the United States said to Saudi Arabia, OK, you can charge whatever you want for, for oil, but you've got to recycle your uh, excess US dollars. Um, you're not going to buy gold with it. And if you buy gold and don't recycle it back into our economy, we're going to consider that an act of war. So the Saudis were like threatened into taking those US dollars and putting them that they were earning for their oil and putting them back into the USA in one form or another. Um, they weren't allowed to buy gold and they had to pump it back into the US economy. So that's not a bad, you know, okay, we're paying you lots of money, but you're going to send all that money back to us in investment anyway. So that's what happened there. Um, by the way, Scott, what did the USA do with the money? Well, they were flooded with money then and all of these shysters in finance banks in Wall Street looked around for places to lend it, saw Latin America and convinced um, numbskull dictators to commit their countries to loans that they couldn't afford. But that's another matter that we won't go into, but that's kind of how that happened. Um, right, so... Um, Incidentally, the United States kept its own, you know, smaller reserves of gold, and it wanted the rest of the world to, um, to basically trade in loans to the United States. So the dollar did not go down. So um, normally, Scott, when we hear about these sort of countries in Latin America who whose exports were failing and they were printing money and they owed the world lots, um, you know, the, their value of their currency would currency would go into free fall. But in the American dollar's case, there was this huge demand for dollars um, that kept, the, kept the, the flow back to America, kept the dollar from that sort of banana republic status. So, you know, what, we mentioned OPEC, but what about other countries? Um, what if, say, you're Germany, France or Japan, and you're earning lots of US dollars, and you don't recycle your dollar receipts back to the US economy, your currency is going to go up. So um, that would um, you know, give you an exchange rate problem. But by buying US bonds or stocks, um, it helps keep your own currency down. So that's one of the sort of selfish reasons, I guess, why countries like Germany, France and Japan would agree to that recycling. Um, but, 
it's all reliant on you know an IOU to an America that's spending money like crazy, running up deficits. You know, will they actually repay them? Is the question. So uh, let me just quote a little bit more here from Michael Hudson. So. He says, the old imperialism was colonialism. You would come in and use military power to install a client ruling class, but each country would have its own currency. What has made imperialism super is that America does not have to colonise another country. It doesn't have to invade a country or go to war with it. All it needs is to have the country invest its savings, its export earnings, in loans to the United States. This enables the United States to keep its interest rates low and enable American investors to borrow from American banks at a low rate to buy up foreign industry and agriculture that's yielding 10%, 15% or more. So this allowed the US to keep really low interest rates that Americans could borrow at low interest and, um, and then buy uh, assets that were yield had better yields in other countries. So American investors realise that despite the balance of payments deficit, they can borrow these dollars at such a low rate from foreign countries um, while pumping money into foreign economies and buying up their industry and agriculture. So uh, that's how that was working. And he said, of course, America didn't come right out and tell other countries you have to pay us tribute, like Roman emperors, although they did in the case of OPEC. Um, just get a lot of gentle persuasion by US diplomats insisting that other countries invest their balance of payments um, in the US dollar. So, um, so that's what makes the US the exceptional country. The value of the currency is based on other countries' savings. Um, the, the money they save has to be held in the form of American dollars uh, that are potentially never going to be repaid. So this economist is saying that this is a huge free ride that the Americans have been enjoying. And he said that you would think Donald Trump would want it to keep going. But Trump's claiming that China's manipulating its currency and by recycling its dollars into loans in the US. So the very thing that US has been telling countries to do for the last 50 years, mm. Trump's complaining about. Mm. And um, so, uh, so Trump is forcing China to um, basically uh, disentangle itself from the US. And um, so they're going to uh, buy gold and they're just going to get rid of American dollars and and de detach themselves from the US economy as much as they can. Because remember, these loans, the, these bonds are essentially the Chinese government sending the money back to the US as a, as a, for an IOU. And if America just goes to war with China, well, they'll just say, well, <laughs> forget about the IOUs, yeah, we're not exactly. paying that. Yeah. So, uh, so really, China is faced with a situation where it's got to say, hmm, no point in us recycling these dollars back to the uh, the US. We've got to try and deal in other currencies, get rid of whatever dollars we've got by buying gold or whatever we can do. Um, they can't even buy um, uh, um, um, businesses and and uh, and other stuff in America because they're prevented. So I'll just say I read a little bit from this quote here. So. 
um, uh, what will China do with these dollars? It tried to do what America did with Europe and South America. It tried to buy American companies, but the US blocked it from doing this on national security grounds. So the government claims that our national security would be threatened if China would buy a chain of filling stations as it wanted to do in California. So the US, of course, has a double standard, claiming that it's threatened if China buys any company, but insisting on its right to buy out um, foreign economies with its dollars. So the usual double standards there. Right. Um, so that leaves China with one option only, uh, and that's buying US Treasury bonds, which it realises that the US Treasury just isn't going to repay. So they have to disentangle themselves. Um, so China's buying gold, Russia is buying gold. Much of the world is now in the process of reverting to the gold exchange standard. Um, countries realise that there's a great advantage of the gold exchange standard. There's only a limited amount of gold in the world's central banks. It means that any country that wages war is going to run such a large balance of payments deficit that's going to lose its gold reserves. So reviving the role of gold may prevent any country, including the United States, from going to war and suffering a military deficit. So the irony is that Trump is breaking up America's financial free ride um, by telling countries to stop recycling their dollar inflows and they're having to de-dollarise their economies make themselves independent of the United States. But that's the very thing that's been propping up the goddamn country. So uh, it's a really dangerous time. So some people may say, well, what about the euro? Maybe the euro could be like a rival to the dollar. And according to this economist, um, uh, the problem with the euro is that the um, the the banks the bankers in charge of the euro believe in austerity, so they don't um, they don't get into this sort of bond market stuff. They've got such few government bonds that they issue that there's there's no big enough bond market in euros to handle the sort of money that's required to be a de facto currency. So they're not into the business of of creating these IOUs because they're into austerity. And according to this economist, they're too much into austerity. Like, um, whereas the Americans are willing to give out IOUs to anybody and everybody because they could, <laughs> yeah, have one. The EU are too tight and it's in fact strangling their economy by not having enough um, uh, sort of capacity in that sense. So that's his criticism of there. So... Um, this, in this uh, link I've got in the show notes, this interviewer says, well, why? Why are they so much into austerity? And this economist says, because the Central Bank of Europe are fighting a class war. They look at themselves as financial generals in the economic fight against labour to hurt the working class and lower wages. So um, it's never emerged from its aristocratic post-feudal system and they follow that sort of theory. So... <laughs> so there's reasons given in the show notes as to why Europe has a philosophy of, of not wanting to issue IOUs like that. So um, let me just see. Uh, I've already said that China, Russia 
Other countries are getting rid of their dollars if they can. They're buying gold and moving quickly to be independent of any reliance on U.S. exports. So, so where I said before that you know the U.S. dollar is not pegged to gold, uh, it's not. But people still buy gold, of course. So mm. it's just not pegged in that sense. So they're using those dollars to buy it. Um, let me just see. Uh, I think I've got that. Um, it says here, the interviewer asked this economist, how far along is the dollar's demise as the world's reserve currency? And he says it's already slowing. Trump is doing everything he can to accelerate it by threatening that if countries continue to recycle their export earnings into dollars, uh, which raises the dollar's exchange rate, which he's trying to avoid because he thinks a lower exchange rate will make his exports, American exports, cheaper. Uh, he's accusing them of manipulating the currency. So, <coughs> so this magical free ride that America's been getting, Trump is actively telling other countries, stop, don't, because he wants a cheap exchange rate. And uh, according to this economist, that, you know, the US could look like Argentina at some point if it keeps going the way it's going because uh, it's the fact that it's the reserve currency that's been propping it up and once that prop disappears then those deficits that America's been running uh, that they can't afford means people will start to go hmm, a bit of a banana republic here um, mm. and he makes an argument why you know just generally in terms of banking you know, having private banks is a problem and that the Chinese government with its centralised banking system has another huge advantage <coughs> over American um, and other countries' systems of, of private banks. So yeah, uh, a very compelling that. argument. I did read that. I'm not entirely convinced of that. Mm. Where is it? Harry said that... Uh America's banks are owned by stockholders and bondholders who would never let Chase Manhattan or Citibank or Wells Fargo just forgive their various categories of loans. Mm. That's why public banking is so much more efficient from an economy-wide level than private banks. It's why banking should be a public utility, not, not privatised. Mm. I'm not convinced of that. You know, I, I have to reread it all, but it seems to me that, you know, we've got we've got very profitable banks over here that are privately owned. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to me that the government appears to have the level of regulation right on our banks mm -hmm. because our banks are still profitable, but they're also, well, you know, banking Royal Commission notwithstanding, they're not doing anything too dodgy, I would have thought. Anyway, I've got to go back through that. I've got to read. I've got, I've got to download this guy's book and read it, actually. Mm. Yeah, I'll leave it to other people to sort of read that section in the notes and read, the, read his book. But <coughs> anyway, he paints a picture, Scott, where you uh, really have to think twice about the future of the US economy. And you just have to keep bearing in mind, you know, the powerful elite, the, the multinational com companies, They've shifted offshore. They've hollowed out America. Like, it doesn't matter to them. Um, they've gone. They've got their stuff out of the country. They don't pay tax into the country anymore. They, their factories are in other countries. Their head offices are quite often. Um, 
they're just roaming the world now. They've been allowed to roam the world as sort of independent little empires, uh, unattached mm-hmm. to any country. So they've detached themselves from the US economy. Um, so they're just, you know, there isn't that that base of, of potential productivity. It's It's gone. It's left the country. So it's a... A very interesting time ahead. It is. It is very interesting. You know, it's um. I I said to you before the show started. I read that whole section. I didn't highlight mm. any of it because I had to read it twice. Yeah. And you know, it's there's a hell of a lot to actually go through. There is, and some of it's like counterintuitive as as well at different times. So but, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, I understand what Trump is aiming for because a lower dollar would you would expect should help American industry mm. because you know, for example. Travel, you know, when me and the better half went to the US, yep. we ended up at, well, what was it, 70 cents or something like that when we went over there. Yep. If we ended up on parity, mm. it would end up much cheaper for us to go over there. There's mm. no doubt about that. Yep. But, you know, it's a, uh, if you end up with your currency being too low, then you end up with a banana republic like that yes. in South America. Yep then you end up with nothing, you know, and this is the whole point. It's, um, and, and money, money, itself. yeah. And money is an illusion, Scott, like it's all on sentiment and confidence. Yeah. And once that evaporates, uh, it can fall like a pack of cards. So, mm. um, so yeah, money relies on an enormous amount of just sentiment and trust and if things happen that take that away, then it very quickly evaporates. So one day we'll do one on money again. But um, and the uh, yeah, so I think that's enough for that one, Scott. And um, next week I wanted to talk about poverty because the other argument that seems to come up a bit with um, the defence of the USA as this brilliant liberal um, democracy is. At least the system we've got has has reduced poverty around the world. So I'd like to poo-poo that view as well. <laughs> Something to look I, forward to? Yeah, I will be very interested in how you're going to poo-poo that because, you know, you've got China that has moved from, you know, one point something billion people out yep. of poverty to, yes. you know, only having a couple of hundred million of them in poverty. You yeah. Know? That has been a very big move for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. so the poverty story is an interesting one. So we're going to give that a crack. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll give that a crack next week. But um, what are we up to t- time-wise, Scott? Let me just see here how we're going. I think uh, it's probably on the shorter side, but there's no point going into religion bashing after all that economic stuff. I reckon. <laughs> I reckon we'll pull it up there. Unless you want, did you want to have anything that you want to add? Anything super urgent? No, topics? No? Uh, just the Victorian confession laws. Right, yes. Catholic yeah. Archbishop Melbourne has said he would rather go to jail than report admissions of child sexual abuse made in the confessional. Yeah. You know, and then he goes on further, and this is the part that really gave me this shit, so I apologise for the language. Hmm. Archbishop Commonsoli said... He would encourage someone who admitted to the abuse to tell the police and tell him again outside the confessional where he could then report it without breaking the seal of confession. Mm. I mean, Jesus Christ. 
does this guy honestly believe that when a bloke sits down and crosses himself and says, forgive me, Father, I have sinned, that that's something special? Yeah. Yeah. And we continue just to give these people extra privileges. Like, exactly. this is this same group is wanting the privilege of being able to sack gay teachers because that of is something that, the cultural yeah. purity they want to maintain in their religious school. Yeah, and that is something that that Indigenous bloke said. He said, you know, he said that, that they've got the hide to ask for these privileges when, you know, we've had a royal commission into their abuses. Yeah. 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 Yep. Uh, Okay, there was that. um, uh, Yeah. Mud just doesn't seem to stick to these guys. No. It doesn't. You know, it's it's one of those things like, you know, this Christmas I'm going to put a little Facebook message up that says, you know, to all the uh, submarine Catholics out there that are surface on special occasions, be aware that a very small percentage of the money you're going to put in the plate this year is going to the support and maintenance of an international child rape cabal. Yeah. You know, so, so. Yep, yep, yep. Scott, after uh, that, that uh, rally that we attended with a mere you know, 200 people there with a few hand-painted cardboard signs, and I've been reading Plots and Prayers, um, mm-hmm. and... Uh, this movement needs money. We need to find somebody with um, genuine money Very uh, who's prepared to be prepared, to, prepared yeah. to put some money into it. Yeah, yeah, with and that we can have people in the halls of power walking around. Until we get that, that you know, they're just in their own bubble doing their own thing, and we need people actually in these major parties in the. In the meeting rooms, in their ear, talking to them. Until we get that, you know, I enjoyed my protest day, but it was, I recognise, completely a waste of time in the sense of, is it going to change anybody's opinion in Canberra? No, Absolutely it's, it's not. not. It's not going to change anyone's opinion no. in Canberra. You know, not you even need, think twice. You need to have, you need to have, well, you need to have one of these protests a week, but you need to have 10,000 people turning out to them once a week. Yeah. yeah, and even then, that would only sort of start to that might just start to prick their conscience. They start to think to themselves, "Well, we've got to actually start paying attention to this." Yeah, you know, because we've had the numbers from the from the census come out, and they've ignored them. You know, it's and, and you I, know, like it was poorly advertised and poorly promoted that thing. But hey, it's just it's just people working part time in amongst their you know uni student obligations and whatever else they're doing, like. No criticism of them. Like, and if people, you know, the Christian groups and that have got full-time paid people mm-hmm. able to do so many things. We need money. We need to find, you know, really this movement, secularism and, and others that we talk about, we need to find um, somebody with money to fund, like the National Secular Lobby, and actually have some full-time people who can spend the time organising stuff. Until then, we're just toast. We just can't do anything. Mm. No, look, I mean, I agree. I mean, I know, you know, I give them 20 bucks a month and that sort of stuff, and I encourage all our listeners to please dig deep and give 20 bucks a month too because I would love to get – I'd love to say that I was responsible for finding a 1,000 people that were prepared to put in 20 bucks a month. Yeah. But 
you know, we're going to need more than that. We are going to, you know, because you, you can think about the, the, what was it, the billion dollars or something like the Catholic Church gets a year, isn't it? Oh, I, I lose track of the numbers. But, you know, dear yeah. listener, if you know of a billionaire who's yeah. <laughs> who you read somewhere was you know, fiddled by a Catholic priest in his junior days and has been bitter about it ever since. It's just, you know, for some or their kid has or their relative has or, like, if there's some but if there's some wealthy Australian out there who you think might be sympathetic, let me know because I'm ready to go begging for money for this movement. That's what we need is money and um, then we can do things. But we're just so poor. Uh, it's just we're just kidding ourselves until we can get some money. Well, we are getting there. Like, we are starting there. Like, you know, the National Secular Lobby has started in Facebook and Twitter and that sort of stuff. They have got mm. started now. Mm. But in order to have some sort of influence, we do need someone permanently walking the corridors of power, watching the ACL go into a room, and then after that they call and say, right, what did they say? Yeah. And then, you know, getting in the area saying, well, that's a load of garbage, you know why, and then go blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you're right. We do need that sort of power to really start putting these bastards back in their box. Yeah, and we need someone with time and power who can attend Labor Party conferences and stuff and say, okay, who are the religious nutters in this group? Now, who are the people who are really up against these guys? What can, and how can we help them? And what? here's some resources and ideas and things that we can say, you know, help them out. So that's what we need to be doing, and we're just... Yeah, it's depressing how we're just such just a tiny, ineffectual movement that does nothing. <laughs> it's depressing. Yeah. All right, dear listener, on that note, uh, I hope you enjoyed the economics. Um, yes. You know, I'm not claiming to know it all 100%, but there's some interesting ideas in there anyway that you can there are, yeah. think about. It's, yeah. it's something just to, to point you in the right direction to start to read about it yourself, I think, because it is, mm. it is a hell of a concern. If the US does go down and it does implode very quickly, then we could end up finding ourselves with our pants around our ankles down here at the southern end of the ocean. Yes, see how it all happens. All right, and then uh, we also got, we have to talk about Brexit as well um, because that's coming up, and um, so maybe next week, yeah. maybe next week we could talk about Brexit and pov and poverty, and and those two things could go hand in hand very well together. Exactly. <laughs> all right, dear listener, that's it for an episode. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye for now. Thanks very much for tuning in. Bye now. The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats Turning and turning in the widening gyre The falcon cannot hear the falconer Things fall apart The centre cannot hold Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world The blood-dimmed tide is loosed And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned The best lack all conviction While the worst are full of passionate intensity Surely some revelation is at hand Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out, when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. A waste of desert sand, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know, the twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast 
Its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.